0: Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Business Editor for Variety. Today my guest in New York is John Sloss, founder and principal of Synetic Media. John has negotiated every kind of deal and navigated every aspect of the independent film business, from lining up financing to advising and marketing and awards campaigns. Today, he's expanded the company's purview to include television development, talent management, and a branded content joint venture with filmmaker David Gordon Green. In this wide-ranging discussion, Sloss explains why he, somewhat bombastically, as he says, sees Cynetic as a media conglomerate for the 21st century. This interview took place in Synetic's offices in Chelsea on March 11th. It was my last in-person appointment before Variety shifted to a work-from-home mandate in light of the coronavirus crisis. Please, everyone, let's stay safe, and let's all keep doing our part to flatten the curve and save lives. John Sloss, Principal of Synetic, thank you so much for making time for us today. My pleasure. Tell me, John, you and the company are well, well established in the indie film world. John Sloss has become synonymous with smart, intelligent management of film properties, of talent, of getting, getting things done in the, in the heat of festival bidding wars, for sure. But in the la- of late, you have been expanding into other areas.
1: Yes, we have. Let's talk about that. And thank you for that. that compliment. I shouldn't let that go unrecognized. It is well earned. Yes. So we have expanded. Um, We are very much at the moment uh, pushing the development of our management company. Uh, And we can talk more about that over time. Uh, Also, last year, uh, David Gordon Green, celebrated filmmaker and commercials director, and I started a company called Brand New Story, which is meant to sit at the intersection of brand messaging and long form storytelling sort of promoting the development of of that uh, phenomenon and I'm also be happy to talk about that.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to cuz that it, obviously that is a growing business. And also you have ventured into the more episodic realm television and digital content. Uh, yes,
1: like everybody else, uh, we are we are fully on that bandwagon as the sort of distinction between um, Episodics and singular features blurs.
0: It it would seem like you know it's for the content business that is is pretty much exploding right now. To to not look at other oppor- you know look at these expanding opportunities would seem to be would seem to be remiss for somebody who was so adept at, at you know handling these kinds of things
1: From the moment uh, Ted Sarandos informed me that he was going to be dropping an entire season of House of Cards at once and I told him he was insane uh, uh, I think the world has had to rethink the length of narrative stories and uh, and whether something told over 11 hours is, Uh, significantly different than something told over 100 minutes, and whether really, in a way, it's the same thing. And to be in the service business facilitating those kinds of stories, you have to be as um, uh, fluent in, in episodics as you do in standalone features.
0: Is there something about, I mean, is it just the expansion of the marketplace? Is there something about this moment of television that made you want to get into this space for the first time?
1: I mean, it is, again, uh, it, it, the idea that that stories would be told a half hour, an hour, a week over over a series of weeks never seemed that particularly interesting to me. The idea that a narrative story can be told over 11 hours that you can watch for 11 hours straight uh, is not only attractive to storytellers, but it was attractive to me as well and, and caused me to sort of reframe my judgment of episodics. And um, my feeling is a narrative is a narrative, whether it's seven minutes long or 12 12 hours long. And I'm in the business of facilitating world-class storytellers. And the distinction between these enforced time periods was really a sort of 20th century analog limitation that no longer exists
0: it is a brave new world certainly for the for the content business which you know we didn't even use that phrase you know not too many years ago tell me i want to talk about about the expansion and some of the partnerships you've set up but let me ask kind of the devil's advocate question is are you expanding in other areas because your your traditional business of (laughs) of films is contracting
1: you are a devil Um, or there's at least two, more challenge. There's, there's two answers to that question. Yes, um, uh, ten years ago, or so, uh, a we there began a diaspora from Synetic of, of um, smart executives who went out into the world, and several of them went to agencies. And one of the first things they told these agencies is Synetic is a great business selling completed films, and. We represent the talent that's in those completed films, and it's a very small step from you, Mr. Talent Agent, down the hall from me, supplying an actor to a film, to you saying, "Oh, by the way, I will put this actor in a film as long as our uh, finance and sales group can sell it." There began the movement of the major talent agencies encroaching on the on the realm of the traditional realm of the sales agent. Um, And it got to the point where, for scripted features, uh, we were largely knocked out of the um, market by agencies who were locking these films up at the casting stage. Um, It used to be that we would look at 1,200 films a year submitted to Sundance and have our pick of what to sell. And that evolved. So yes, to say uh, that... uh, caused us to be you know uh, agile and to pivot on our sort of world-class uh, you know advisory services in different directions would be a fair statement. Um, but also, uh, a lot of things have happened uh, over the past 20 years that have um, created uh, a new ecosystem for uh, people in our position, with the kind of skill sets we have to help facilitate storytelling uh, outside the, uh, the the traditional system,
0: you set up last October. You set up a content a, a development partnership with a big unscripted production, sort of a conglomerate of unscripted banners, all three media, which has a big presence in the U.S. and a, and is based in the U.K. Tell me how that tell me how that deals works.
1: Um, It is full-on. It is working um, uh, 100 miles an hour right now. We've got a bunch of projects in the process of being developed. Uh, It is a new experience for me because I feel like I've always uh, avoided the idea of, of deploying money on our own behalf. I've never sought to raise a production fund, Um, I've always felt that uh, we are agnostic and we can access all sorts, all forms of financing on behalf of our clients Um, and to then compete with those forms of financing by having our own uh, fund uh, uh, would create um, a complicated situation. So the idea of having a development fund, which is what we do have, as you rightly identified it, with all three, which is a great organization, um, feels like a different um, relationship with, uh, with our clients whose, whose uh, stories we're developing through this fund. And I've had to sort of grapple with that and, and get comfortable with it.
0: And that's interesting because you mentioned clients. That goes into another area of expansion for you that has been, it's, it's not brand new. You said about seven years ago, you, you ventured into the talent, the artist management business. So in terms of the deals that, the stuff that you're developing with all three, is that for clients that are on the talent management side or people that you work with on on other content?
1: You know, because Projects. of all the different areas uh, we have, we have a law firm, we have this management company, we have a consulting company, uh, we, we have a finance group, we have a sales group. We see so many different stories, whether it's for the filmmakers we work with, whether it's just IP that that comes across our screen. Um, uh, and we, uh, we have always historically parceled it out to financiers and to other producers and our feeling was maybe we should uh, help those opportunities develop further that we could be doing a service for everyone and sort of maintain our position in the process you know um, more uh, solidly and um, like I said it, it It's not typically what we've done historically, but because we see all these opportunities and because we'd like to help them, push them forward, this felt like um, it could make sense.
0: How has it been for you in this process, in developing things with all three, it sounds like you're more at the ground floor of projects. H- how is that it is. working for the company?
1: I mean, it's interesting. We were approached by all three about this. This would this would, would have never happened if Tim Pastor, who I'd worked with when we were consulting for National Geographic, went over to run All Three America. To be the head, yeah. Yeah, uh, and he approached me with this idea because I think he saw how many stories and how many people we acted on behalf of and made this suggestion. Um, But also at the same time last year, we put the financing together for Green Book. And Green Book was a project that we had no connection to beforehand. No one we worked with was attached to it. It was just a script that uh, one of the producers sent us and said, we know you have a financing group. Um, uh, The agency that's looking after this isn't really focused on it. Can you help us get it financed? And we took it out and we got it financed. Um, and we sort of stepped back and, and let it go out into the world. And I think it gave us pause and said, well, you know, maybe if we had the ability to develop it with our resources internally, we could have been more fully attached to it when it went out into the world rather than just sort of handing it off to a set of financiers. Um, so those two things happening at the same period, I think really pushed us over the top and said, let's give uh, this development uh, fund idea a try.
0: And when you say development fund, is that designed to give you more, is is that designed to give you more ownership than you would if it was a more traditional producer, like overall deal relationship with between your company and all three?
1: I mean, I don't think it gives us as much ownership as if we were full, full full-time on-set producers, but it's clearly designed to give us more ownership than we have historically had, as a rep, as a pure representative.
0: Let's talk about brand new story. That's also a you know it sounds like a, a pretty big departure from what you have done in the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, brand new story. This this sort of came out of a one-on-one conversation I had at a Winston Baker conference three years ago with David Gordon Green, where we were just sort of riffing, and I've always admired David. He is a world-class filmmaker, and he is a world-class commercials director. And an observation that we made, uh, as simple and, uh, and uh, sort of overly simplistic as I guess this would be, is that there are two essential things occurring um, at the same time in the world. And one is that um, uh, brands are having a harder time well, let me, let me step back. Uh, one is that we're approaching a world where nobody is going to do anything, even for 30 seconds, that they don't want to do. So the notion of making people watch commercials that they don't want to watch is something that, that is quickly fading away. And so brands uh, are scrambling to... Uh, you know, keep their their message and their their sort of brand awareness front and center in the consumers. And if they can't do it by buying uh, their attention for thirty seconds at a time, they need to find um, other ways to do it. Um, and at the same time, uh, consumers, younger consumers, uh, are interested in knowing what the values of a brand are. It's something that wasn't uh, intuitive to me, but has become more um, clear. As I've in you know embarked on this venture, is that brand values actually are a thing, and they, they matter to um, at least a newer generation of consumers. What does a brand stand for?
0: So they will sit and watch a piece
1: of content that elucidates what? Well, this is the question. So So there's that happening, and at the same time, um, you know the media companies that are living and dying, strictly by consumption of content are going to be increasingly challenged so the question is um, can brands with double bottom lines and i sort of was first made aware of this when i made a couple films with amazon who basically sort of pioneered the double bottom line with with amazon prime i mean they want to drive eyeballs to Amazon Prime because they know those eyeballs are also going to buy toilet paper while they're in Amazon Prime. So so is there a vision of the future for a studio that is really a consumer brand that knows its audience, that maybe can learn very quickly how to tell stories and whose stories can then embody brand messages and, and keep the brand front and center with consumers? You know, essential to this is the understanding that, uh, as I said before, that people aren't going to spend a second watching content that doesn't entertain them. They, you have to earn people's attention. So as long as brands understood that they had to entertain first and convey brand messaging and values second, then there's a real opportunity out there. So David and I, we had this conversation and we sort of evolved this thinking and said, well, brands are sort of stumbling in the dark, not sort of knowing what the next iteration beyond commercials is and keeping their brand out there, we as storytellers and as someone who, especially David, who understands the way brands think, um, can help pull them toward this sort of longer form storytelling, while at the same time, we are credible to a whole group of storytellers and filmmakers who are suspicious of brands and what their motivations are.
0: I feel like it's going to be a thinly veiled... Just nonstop commercial.
1: Yeah, a hundred and twenty-minute commercial, which, as we said before, will be watched by no one. So, um, can we sit in the middle between these suspicious world-class storytellers <laughs> and these, you know, brands that are looking for a way to stay relevant and in people's minds, and usher them toward a sort of newer future where they are content creators?
0: Have you pitched that to like blue chip advertisers?
1: Uh, we've pitched it to blue chip, yes, uh, consumer companies, not advertising. Agencies are caught in a tricky situation, advertising agencies in this regard, and they're, I think, uh, scrambling to adapt to this as well. Um, But we, we spend a lot of time pitching it to consumer brands, and we're getting a tremendous amount of uptake on it. Hi, it's Andrew Wallenstein, the other half of the Strictly Business podcast. I want to tell you about my new venture called Variety Intelligence Platform. It's a new subscribers-only section to Variety.com that digs deep into the trends and issues that matter most to media professionals. We do that with a mix of special reports on everything from streaming wars to production incentives, along with daily commentary weighing in on the latest industry developments. So check it out at Variety.com slash VIP. And I'd like to extend a special thank you to our launch partner, Pluto TV. The leading free streaming TV service in America.
0: It sounds like you've got you've got a lot of kind of you know burgeoning activity. That must be kind of exciting for you as a as a leader.
1: I mean, it is. Uh, I what I the one thing I, that sort of if there's if there's an overriding uh, ethos or theme to what we're trying to do here. Uh, It's very simple, I I, I somewhat bombastically but somewhat seriously refer to us as the first media conglomerate of the 21st century. Um, The 20th century was about studios and uh, the networks, uh, and they controlled the physical plant, they controlled um, the capital, they actually took time to develop storytelling, and they had a shared monopoly on delivery. and everybody had to sort of serve them because of it. The agencies were oriented to, to make uh, content with them. Uh, the talent was waiting to be employed by them. Uh, you know, systematically, one by one, uh, those organizations have surrendered these elements of control. They no longer have um, a shared monopoly over delivery. They don't use their own money anymore. They don't bother to develop anymore. Um, so the question is... Wh- Where does that leave the realm of storytelling? And our observation was the scarce resource in this new environment are the creators. And the creators uh, have available to them all the tools that will enable them to create content, to own it, if that makes sense, and to supervise the dissemination out into the world. Um, And uh, what we've tried to do with this company was to create a set of world-class services that can basically surround scalable creators on a 360-degree basis with every business component they need in order to just sit in a room and create. Whether it's putting financing together, whether it's sales, whether it's our marketing group, which we haven't even talked about, mm-hmm. which is extraordinary and you know basically was instrumental in winning uh, Neon, uh, best picture with *Parasite* this year. Um, whether it's a pretty good run, *Green Book*, *Parasite*. Yeah, yeah we, we're we're on a roll. Um, whether it, it is uh, the consulting group, uh, you know, as we, or we say management, we are we are organized to basically take creators uh, who are working at the highest level and who are scalable, who want to sort of, you know go out into the world with any number of creations um, on any level, whether it's, like I said, seven-minute stories or 11-hour stories, and, and optimize their opportunities. Tell them, they come to us, we say, here are the 10 different ways you can finance this. Here are the ways you can um, put it out into the world in terms of platforms or, or distribution mechanisms. You know, Here's a marketing group who can make sure that when you've handed it off to someone else, You can stay involved and oversee uh, its dissemination out into the world. I mean, that's the idea behind the company. And to me, that's what a media conglomerate is going to look like in the 21st century, someone who facilitates for the creators, who are finally going to sort of realize their inherent power and largely own their own content.
0: Um, It. It's, it's hearing you talk about all this is so fascinating at a time when we know that Hollywood's largest talent agencies are in what's become nearly a year long battle with the Writers Guild, which represents the people f- where the rubber, you know, where the where it all starts, the people that the, mm-hmm. the, the the screenwriters. How has I mean, has that has that breach that has happened with so many writers, you know, formally leaving their agents? Has that do you think is that created opportunities
1: well, I mean, look, we work very closely with the agencies, and many of the people, if not all the people we manage, have agents. Um, and we're not looking to be opportunistic at a time when mm-hmm. the agencies and, and the writers are sort of trying to sort out differences between them. But there's a simple inescapable fact with regard to the agencies, is that the, the large talent agencies are largely owned by private equity companies. And the pressure on returns from private equity companies has forced these agencies to look beyond the traditional representation model. And um, that, I think, creates opportunities um, for sophisticated um, representatives to come in. I mean, agencies are great. They have a breadth of knowledge uh, of the marketplace that we can't possibly have, but they also have 2,000 clients each. So the question is, if their knowledge is across this horizontal uh, mass of data and information, and ours is more vertical in the, uh, the ability to have many fewer clients but to be more immersive on on also a, a sort of sophisticated level equal to the agencies on behalf of those clients, you know, is there an opportunity in the management realm? And we've decided absolutely.
0: Can you point to a... A win or a success story for any of your, a recent success story for any of your talent management clients.
1: I mean, we we work very closely with Richard Linkletter, and you know his career has been a continual success story. Um, you know, I, it's it's not a secret that um, I put together the financing model for Boyhood, which enabled him to make a film over twelve years. Um,
0: convincing IFC that this was a good, that this was a good thing, yeah, which that, it that, turned out to be.
1: That that they should uh, invest in something that they can't begin to see a return on for twelve years, <laughs> and they ended up uh, getting an incredibly handsome return on their investment. But um, I, I'm very proud of my association with Richard Linkletter, and I always point to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Green Book is a is a classic example of how Synetic works at its best. Um, we. We, you know, uh, we didn't write this. The script came to us written. Uh, uh, Pete Farrelly said he wanted Mahershala Ali and Viggo Mortensen in it. And and we said, if you get those guys to commit, we will get it financed. And we did. Um, And he went and made a beautiful movie. And what we did is we stayed involved with it on a granular level for six months after the release. To try and win it an Academy Award for Best Picture, and uh, personally, I learned a lot from losing with Green Book, uh, with I'm sorry, with Boyhood, uh, that we then put in our service in in this sort of strategy effort for Green Book um, that that worked out.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell us how the parasite relationship came through, because that that is such a such a wonderful kind of out of nowhere, you know, rags to riches success story.
1: Well, whereas the marketing group, you know, when I say that we're a media conglomerate for the 21st century, well, the marketing group sort of basked uh, to the extent they basked in um, the glow of the Green Book win because they didn't work on Green Book and, and we did. Uh, I, our financing group uh, didn't work on Parasite. Our, our marketing group did it entirely. So we were not on the ground. But we I guess share from in the reflected glory of, of their strategic brilliance uh, on behalf of the film and the film itself is brilliant, but uh, as I learned uh, in the trenches on boyhood, uh, they don't give that award necessarily for best film they give it for best campaign
0: <laughs> that, that sounds like um, you know some as you say like a, a hard one lesson out of out of uh,
1: being in the hunt and not, you know. I mean, I was immensely disappointed that Boyhood did not win Best Picture. And uh, if there's any consolation, I learned so much on that that we put to work in the service of Green Book.
0: Is there a Best Picture premium? Does winning Best Picture add to the long tail of a um, of a property in a in a financial is there a, can you put a put a dollar sign on what a best picture win means
1: I mean I ha- I think Tom Quinn at uh, Neon helped revolutionize that this year uh, in that I think he grossed more uh, on Parasite post win than just about anyone ever has on a post win where where you really gross your money uh, and he had to win it this year and this might have been a contributor because. The nomination period was much shorter this year. Excuse me. The the nomination period was much shorter this year. So in a way, the spillover made sense to to the added gross after the win. Uh, Green Book grows very little after it won, but it had a full nomination period. And what I've come to realize, and I realize this with with Boyhood, is that you don't get a boost from a nomination just by being nominated. But if you're nominated and you're one of the two or three films that is really being considered as a potential winner, then you get a significant boost because the general population reads that and no one wants to be left out. If you, if you think there's a film that really has a chance of winning, you wanna see it before Oscar night. And that's where the gross really happens uh, for those two or three films during the six week period between nomination and, and the awards.
0: Mm-hmm. wow well, um let's talk about what everybody in the film business i think is talking about at some point uh the sorry, let's call it the netflix slash amazon effect on filmmaking do you think that the entry of these companies in a big way with capital and energy and you know obviously trying to draw a-list people do you think a lot of people think that this, is, that this is the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming for the end of the theatrical business as it has, you know, ex- yeah.
1: existed for 100 years. I think they may be the three horsemen and then coronavirus is the fourth horseman. Um, I mean, the theatrical experience is challenged. There's no doubt right now. And it's a weird paradox because there's never been more money in the marketplace uh, for the financing of content. In my 30 years of doing this, and there is right at this moment, um, you know, there, there's a rumor, I, and I have no idea whether this is true, but the rumor on the street was that the content budget at Netflix for 2020 is 19 billion dollars, and there are there are at least five platforms chasing Netflix, you know, for world uh, domination. You know, for the for the uh, Netflix may have 160 million sets of eyeballs. But, you know, there's an addressable market out there of 7 billion people. And I think that's really what the platforms are looking at. And they're spending largely uh, into a deficit to try and get there first.
0: Do you think it, the fact that, there's, that they're putting a lot of money and they're attracting very strong creatives, do you think that that is to the detriment of the traditional film business? The traditional release-it-in-the-theater
1: film business? It's clearly to the... Yes, I think it's clearly to the detriment of at least our end of the business, which is always sort of trafficked in the character-driven sort of literary stuff. I think there seems, to, you know, the the sort of uh, theme park, uh, superhero, myth-based, uh, large-scale films seem to be as uh, as popular as ever, and people are still seem to be willing to go to movie theaters to see them. But I think the independent sector has really suffered theatrically from this. And you see the number of films that are being bought out of Sundance, scripted films, is down significantly. And last year, if Amazon hadn't gone and paid a tremendous amount for three films, it would have been a, a disastrous Sundance. And this year, yeah, you know, it's still sort of the same thing.
0: Do you think that the sales were down this year because there were high prices, paid for projects that were chased that just didn't perform at the box office?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly a component. But when you look at um, what's it called Palm Springs, which is sort of another one that was Apple sort of getting into the play. Um, uh, I think, you know, Sundance seems to be a popular place for um, offbeat romantic comedies with movie stars in it um, and for documentaries, which is a realm that we're very heavily invested in. Um, And there's a big gap in the middle for dramas and just really worthy, you know, traditional independent films, Uh, whether that's as a result of the failure of films last year or whether that's just one component, I don't know.
0: Um, you mentioned that that you feel like there's more money in the marketplace right now. Do you do you mean more money for specifically film or just content in general? And why well, do you think uh, there is again?
1: That gets back to our original conversation about is there a difference between an episode, eleven hour episodic that gets dropped at once and a, and a two hour movie? Um, if if Netflix is indeed spending nineteen billion dollars uh, and all these other platforms are chasing them, there's no question that there's more money in the marketplace than there's ever been. Um, you know, what that means for traditional theatrical distributors, I mean, I think A24 is doing quite well. I think Neon has staked their Made place. a big splash, yeah. yeah. And I think they're leaning into that. Um, it's, uh, you know... I don't think anyone has all the answers now, and it's such a sort of unstable time, it's hard to know where things are going to go. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, I don't know when this podcast is going to hit the air, but, you know, right now there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about any public gathering because of the coronavirus.
0: It, the first thing i did when i got here was 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 wash my hands which is, seems to be the new protocol yeah indeed um, setting aside as i'm i'm curious about the financing setting aside the influx of the big platforms the amazons the Netflixes, the hulu's is is there private equity money out there chasing ch- chasing content as it used to be? Is it, you know, for, for so long it was going, you know, it was the German funds. It was, you know, it was, there, there was always like a movable feast of there was some sector that was ready to inv- invest in movies and it feels like that's been a lot quieter.
1: Well, I mean, there's always been financial engineering um, and, uh, you know, it's funny. I always say I've dedicated my career to getting films made for the right reason and, and not for the wrong reason, like insurance to, you know, there were there was an ins- there was an insurance movement at one point where insurance companies were getting into the finance of films. Uh, there, there's all sorts of, re, you know, or, or Sylvester Stallone remains popular in Estonia or something, and that gets a film <laughs> financed. Um, uh, these bubbles uh, emerge from time to time. Uh, you know, the subsidy universe used to be in Europe, and equity-driven universe used to be uh, the province of the States. That is now more global and less U.S.-centric. There's still a lot of equity money out there, and, and what, what has become an essential component of film finance in the United States is, is soft money, is, is um, subsidies from states. And uh, it's almost irresponsible to make a film in the United States financed by equity without a significant sort of tax benefit or rebate from uh, from the state of production, which explains why there are more films being made in Georgia than there are in California.
0: John, how does uh, a guy from Michigan get into this particular re- end of the film business and, and become so successful at it? Uh, how did you get uh, started? That's I like, was in the right place at the right
1: been. time. Uh, you know, I had a very... Uh, I decided to. I was raised um, to think that New York was the cultural capital of the world. You know, my father was sort of a frustrated New Yorker. He (laughs) he subscribed to to the New Yorker and sort of always pointed east. Um, And I had a bad initial experience in California. I was hitchhiking around the country, believe it or not. And I thought, like, this place is an endless suburb. I don't want to live here. So I want. You know, I was in the film society at the University University of Michigan, and I wanted to get into film. Uh, and I went to law school because I came from a family of salesmen, and I <laughs> needed a risk-averse uh, trade. Um, I said, i'm going to I want to be in the entertainment business, but I'm going to go to New York and try to do it there because I don't want to live in Los Angeles. And I always wanted to live in New York. And I got onto Wall Street and I worked uh, at a corporate firm for three years. and then I got an opportunity to become an entertainment lawyer. And I jumped at it. Uh, and I, fell into the independent film world because that's where my sensibilities lie, and that's kind of where film, where, where film existed in New York. And I realized very quickly, and this was sort of the aha moment of my career, is that as a lawyer, you can be a traditional lawyer and, and be passive and wait for other people to do deals and put financing together, and you can document them like traditional lawyers do, uh, or having negotiated the sales and financing of films and knowing who those people are, the, those financiers and those distributors, I can go to my producer clients and say, you don't like raising money anyway. You'd rather produce a movie. And I know all these people. I'm going to take it upon myself to go out and put the financing together for you. And they, they were relieved and they said, yes, we, we want to be producers. We don't want to be fundraisers. Um, and so I... Threw myself into the breach and started uh, trying to put finance together for my clients' films. And out of that grew uh, Synetic, which is a service company for all the stuff that isn't the practice of law. And we still have a very vibrant law firm here. And, you know, the I just sort of rode the rise of the independent film world. And what happened, what people don't realize is what happened about 20 years ago is when the studios sort of got out of the finance business and opened the kimono to Wall Street, they started creating uh, finance models for $200 million films that looked exactly like the finance models for $2 million independent films. And because they I They stole your playbook. Well, or, or they, they created an opportunity for me. And so um, they did steal the playbook a little bit, but uh, we were smart enough to realize that we could bring the expertise that we brought to these smaller films to the financing of larger films, and that's, we got involved in those. Mm
0: -hmm. What was the first film that you worked on that you really felt like, when you saw it on the big screen, you felt like, I really played a huge role in getting this onto the screen? Uh,
1: It was the first film I executive produced, which was City of Hope by John Sayles, um, which unfortunately was released in theaters the same weekend as the Anita Hill confirmation hearing. (laughs) And if you looked at a Venn diagram of the people um, who watched John Sayles films and the people <laughs> who would be glued to the TV to see whether Clarence Thomas uh, would be affirmed as a Supreme Court justice, you realize that no one was going to go to the movie theater that weekend. But it, was, it's a, it remains a very important film to me. It's a film I'm very proud to have been associated with, and it sort of set me on my path.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the new things going on at Synetic and a little bit about the about the business at a, at a difficult time for the business, for the world, and let's hope that uh, we can do this again someday uh, when we're not under the threat of coronavirus and yes. everything else.
1: Let's go wash our hands and hatch a plan for another uh, visit to the podcast.
0: Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business.